Thank you, Pastor Tim, for the prayer, prayer of supplication. And um, wow, it's just been a wonderful experience of worship thus far and the ordinances of the baptism and then the Lord's Supper. And it just makes you so glad to be a Christian and to be a part of the family of God and to be engaged in the life of the church and just see God working in the lives of so many different people and, and just uh, the way He engages us singing songs of praise to the Lord. I, I don't know about you, but these songs are in our worship guide. Thank you, Brother Mark and Amy, for leading us in, in the music part of that. Uh, what a way to testify to God of, of our love and adoration for Him and singing these powerful songs. I mean, Amazing Grace. I mean, uh, my goodness, do you ever get tired of that one? And, and just singing, you know, this uh, last song that we were singing, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Does that, does that resonate in your heart? Do you read those words when you're singing it and think about, oh my goodness, how, how deep is the Father's love for us? That He would do this for us and send in His only precious begotten Son, Jesus, and allow Him to endure what He did on the cross to pay the price for our... Oh, listen, worship is, is a privilege, amen? To be able to come before God and know, know that He means what He does to us. Worship is a, just a time to reflect what God means to us and, and what He means in our heart. And so as we uh, get into the Word this morning, I'm, I'm continuing in the, in the book of Psalms. And the title of the series uh, is uh, Life Lessons from Psalms. And really, I want, it, I want it to be you know spiritual in the fact that it will help you and I to grow in our relationship with the Lord. And, and, and also doctrinally to grow in doctrine and, and theological out of the Word of God. But, but I hope that you will extract some practical lessons from God's Word that will help you to live life, to master life, following the Master. That's the key. That's what it means to be a Christian. It is to live the abundant life. Amen? And Jesus said that. He says, I, I'm come that they might have life, but they might have it more abundantly. Listen, brothers and sisters, God is not just calling us to exist in this world. Everybody else that's outside of the faith is existing. They're going through the motions. They don't get it. We need to pray they will. But the fact is, you and I, we're blessed that God has revealed to us the truth of His revelation and, and who He is and what He has done and what He's doing in our lives. And so, you know, for us to take the Scriptures and to apply it to our lives every day. And I believe in this 32nd Psalm that we've already read already, there are some lessons to be learned. You know, unlike some man-made religions, God uh, in, in Christianity and in the Bible... Just take the Word of God, the Bible, those 66 books inspired by the, by the very breath of God through in, inspired writers that are handed down to us in the Old Testament and New Testament. You know, one of the authenticating facts of the Scriptures is the fact that if this was fabricated, then God would have polished it up. He would have taken out some of the embarrassing things and glossed over those and made everything look really good and rosy. But let me tell you something. You read the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and God tells it like it is. He reveals it like it is. You see the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, it's all out there. And even as we look at somebody that is highly revered like, like King David... I mean, you know, my goodness, every child's hero, the, the, the shepherd boy that went out there and, and slayed that nine and a half foot tall giant who was anointed to become the greatest king of, of the nation of Israel. I mean, he's held up on a pedestal as being the king, the greatest king, of course, second to Christ, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But I mean, my goodness, but even David, even David had moments in his life 
that were certainly shameful for him, for the nation of God, but then more importantly, very hurtful in his relationship with God. And yet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David tells it like it is. He opens his heart. He gives a public confession to everybody to see. Why? Because he's proud of what he did when he sinned and committed adultery with Bathsheba and, and then arranging the murder of her husband and covering that up. No, he wasn't proud of that. As you'll see, he was broken. And in Psalm 32, you'll see David sharing with us, God had David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tell us valuable things about the importance of confessing our sin. Listen, brothers and sisters, as we talked about coming to the Lord's table and being right with God, it's so important. You cannot live the Christian life to its fullest. You cannot have a genuine, authentic, close relationship with God. You cannot walk in fellowship with the God of the universe and be in close communion with the Spirit of Christ if you are knowingly harboring sin in your life and not confessing it and repenting of it. So Psalm 32 is one of seven penitential psalms. These are psalms of penance. Psalm 6, Psalm 38, the famous one, Psalm 51, after David had been confronted by the prophet Nathan who pointed his bony finger at the king after he told him that heart-wrenching story of the man with the sheep to help David to understand that he had committed a horrible, horrible crime and sin against God and the nation of Israel. And David was so incensed by the thought that a man could take another man's innocent lamb and, and butcher it to, to feed his own guest. And, and David said, that, ought, that man ought to be killed. And then Nathan pointed his finger at the king and said, you are that man. You, you are that man, king. You have taken another man's precious bride. And then you've killed him. And it all came crashing down. The weight of the horribleness of the sin that he had committed in the very eyes of God. Psalm 51 captures that. We'll see some of that in Psalm 32. Psalm 102. Psalm 130. Psalm 143. These are the psalms of the penitential psalms that David expresses heartfelt penance over sins that he's committed against God. But this is also a masculine psalm in that it is a teaching psalm. In other words, there are words of wisdom embedded in the body of this psalm, and we'll get to that, so that we can learn from it. You know, I'm a firm believer that you don't have to repeat somebody else's mistake just to say you've experienced it. My goodness, let's learn from each other's mistakes. If I've made mess-ups or done things in my life, you know, that, that have been terrible blunders, listen, I want to tell people, I know it's embarrassing, but I want to tell, I don't want you to go through the embarrassment. I don't want you to go through the heartache. I don't want you to go through the heartbreak. We can learn from each other's experiences, and that's what this psalm helps us to do. You know, as I said, the psalms are a, a collection of, of songs. They were intended to be designed so that the, the Jewish people coming together and worshiping God would sing them. And I, you know, I, 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 I can't get a tune, you know, to go along with that, but maybe Brother Mark can do that, and Amy can sit down at the piano. They can arrange some psalms or some music to go along with it. But, but if the, the Jewish nation coming together to worship God would be actually singing these, and so they would be singing these, but these, not just going through the words and singing it, but they would be singing wonderful words of testimony that would be praising God or offering intercession to God or crying out to, to God for help or sharing words of wisdom in these psalms. And so as he begins in this 
psalm that in its subtitle is called a psalm of contemplation. In other words, it's, it's something you don't just read over and say, okay, I've read Psalm 32. Next. It's worth, it's worth sitting down this week, ladies and gentlemen, and, and sitting down in your quiet time and, and letting God talk to you about what He's saying in these passages because they are there for a purpose and they are very, very important. The first two verses of Psalm 32 are, I consider, a beatitude of a forgiven sinner. A beatitude of a forgiven sinner. It makes you think about it in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount and He got into that section we call the Beatitudes where everything started with blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit and on and on and on. Blessed means to be blissfully happy, absolutely content in God. It's, it's, it's interesting that David starts out this psalm as a beatitude. He said, blessed is he whose transgressions or transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. This is an important psalm. If you hold your place there, you venture over to the uh, New Testament and look at the New Testament book of Romans, I want you to see it's an important psalm. And it's a teaching psalm because the Apostle Paul used it in talking about the, mar- the marvelous grace of God over in Romans in chapter 4 and verse 6, listen to what Paul says. He quotes right out of Psalm 32 as he's writing to the church at Rome and helping them to understand that you don't make yourself right with God through works, but it's through the grace of God and it's through faith. That's the only way that you can be right with God. And so in verse 6 of chapter 4 of Romans, Paul said, Just as David also described the blessed, blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And he goes right into quoting, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Paul recognized the significance of the words of David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wanted the church at Rome and Christians subsequently for generations to understand that David had said something very, very important. Ladies and gentlemen, the thing that I would stress to you today is as we consider the fact if you have been forgiven by God and if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, if you are truly a Christian, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is you. This is me. You have been forgiven. I have been forgiven. The waters of that baptismal pool represents to the, the public watching, the congregation, that those who are immersed under those waters, they have been forgiven, hallelujah, of all of their sins. And it's worth getting excited about. That's why I like it when we shout, not, why not shout, but we clap and cheer. My goodness, the baptism, the ordinance of baptism shouldn't be a somber time. It shouldn't be a time when we sit on our hands and say, oh, isn't that nice? <laughs> Praise God. Do you realize that somebody who was dead and separated and on their way to hell has, has been wonderfully regenerated by the powerful blood of Jesus Christ? Their sins are forgiven. Hey, that's all of us. That's all of us. And so our response ought to be, I'm happy. I'm enjoying this. This is a joyful thing. Blessed am I because my sins have been forgiven. That's why I think Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, 16. You know this verse. This is everybody's favorite verse to remember when Paul says, Rejoice always. Rejoice always. But wait a minute, preacher. I just lost my job. Wait a minute, preacher. My, my, I got a loved one's over in the hospital. They're deathly ill. Wait a minute, preacher. I just had a falling out with my wife. Hey, wait a minute. How can you say that I need to be rejoicing? I'll tell you why you can say that. 
Because all of the problems you and I could possibly face in this world are minuscule compared to the reality that we have been wonderfully, gloriously, eternally saved from our sins and we have been adopted into the family of God and we are, we are bound to live forever in the presence of God. Now, that ought to make you say rejoice. And what a joy it is. And this psalm celebrates God's complete forgiveness you notice there in that first verse, uh, those first two verses, that, that David uses the, the different words for sin. He said, blessed is he who, whose transgression, which means rebellion, or to be disloyal to God. And then he drops down the next line, whose sin, which means missing the mark. Those who, who have missed the mark of God's will. And then he goes down in verse 2 and he talks about the iniquity, which is the, the, the deceit. Our attempts to deceive. And, and so he's given three words that all are synonymous in talking about sin. Why is he doing that? Because he wants you and I to understand. God doesn't just forgive sin categorically. God doesn't just forgive some sins and then other sins maybe takes a little bit more. No, when God forgives us, he forgives us of all sin. That's why I love that passage in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 when he says, If we confess our sins... God is faithful to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us of what? All of our unrighteousness. Isn't that wonderful? Past, present, and future. What a joy it is to know that we are those who have been forgiven totally of all of our sins. Now, if we were singing those first two verses, it would be something like, you know, blessed is he whose transgressions have been forgiven. You know, and, and, but then, then the orchestra at verse 3 would cue down. I don't know a thing about music, but I know the, the, the mood of the music would go from joyous and, and, and celebratory to becoming somber. There may be an oboe playing in the background. Or tuba or something. To represent... The mood is changing because David is getting ready now to talk about the experience of dealing honestly with sin. And this is when he came to grips with the reality of the sin in his life that he had been trying to cover up. And he had not confessed to God. He had not repented of God. Look with me in verse 3. David says, when I kept silent, in other words, I didn't confess my sins. I was trying to hide my sins. I was living a lie. He says, my bones grew old. Through my groanings all day long. Now some of you younger people can't relate to this. But I sure can relate to older citizens in the, in the congregation. I used to think, you know, my grandma and my mom would talk about, you yeah, know, oh, my bones are hurting today, you know. <laughs> God, my bones are hurting. You know, the weather must be changing and all. Hey, I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I know what it's like when your bones start hurting, you know. And David is saying, oh, listen, I was under such conviction that I was having not only the, the emotional stress of knowing that I was living a lie before God, Almighty, Eternal, All-Knowing God. But he said, listen, it was beginning to take a physical toll on me. And it will. It will. When you try to live a lie, you try to harbor sin, unconfessed and unrepented in your life, you will begin to experience some of the anguish that David was experiencing as God was disciplining him in his spirit and in his soul for unconfessed sins. And I'll tell you what, it will take a physical toll on you. If you let sin stay in your life unconfessed, it's like a festering sore. It's like a spiritual cancer. And it continues to grow and to spread and it will begin to infiltrate just about every aspect of your life. And you will feel the, the, the stress emotionally. You'll feel it physically and certainly you'll feel it 
spiritually. And David is talking about this hidden sin here. Look what he, he goes on to say. He says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. You ever been under a weight of conviction? Ever go to bed with sin, unconfessed, unrepented in your heart? You think you can sleep, but you lay there and you know God is pressing down on you. Now listen, He doesn't just work on you during the daytime, but He'll work on you in the daytime, at the nighttime. But he'll work on you at day two. He'll be pressing down on your heart. And David says, I felt your heavy hand upon me, Lord. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. David said, listen, I was going through a spiritual drought in my soul. And finally he came to the, the solution of his sin. In verse 5 he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. This is confession, ladies and gentlemen. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. You go over to, to another penitential psalm, Psalm 51, and read that psalm. And understand how David talks about, oh, how, how burdened his heart was. Listen to, to what David said there in Psalm 51. David said, oh, I'm sorry. We get in the Psalms, that helps. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. You hear what David is saying? He says, Lord, I'm out of fellowship with you. The joy that I once had, the joy that would cause him to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie, lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. And, and, and yea, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Listen, David suddenly, under the conviction of sin, was saying, I don't have that anymore, Lord. I'm going through a spiritual drought. There's nothing but dryness in my soul. He says, oh God, return to me to the joy of that salvation. And the solution, the solution to unrepentant sin, the only solution is confession and repentance. We have to come humbly before God. We have to come honestly before God. We can't mince words. We have to tell it like it is. He's waiting on us to take that step. But the good news is, He's promised us in His Word, as I shared with you from 1 John chapter. 1 verse 9, He's promised us that He is faithful. There's no, rec no record in the Scriptures, no indication whatsoever of a genuinely repentant sinner broken in their sinfulness, humbly coming to God, confessing their sin to God, asking for forgiveness, and then God said, nah, let me think about it. I'll get back to you on that one. Aren't you glad? I think about the work based religions of the world. Pastor Tim was praying for Muslims. And all the things they put themselves through to somehow please a false god who's, who's very unpredictable and anger related. And, and they go through these rituals and they go through these pilgrimages and they sacrifice terribly and, and suffer terribly trying to please a god that was man-made in the beginning. Aren't you glad you don't have to go through that? To find peace in your life and to have a fellowship with God. 
I think about the Pope and his visit to America. And, you know, I think about our Catholic friends and those who are maybe family members who are in the Catholic Church, you know, and, 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 and how much emphasis they put upon the works, whether it's through doing penance or, or, or mass and, and, and all these things that they feel like I, they've got to do this and they've got to do this and they've got to do this. And if they forget to do this and maybe they slip up, then there goes their salvation or they'll get excommunicated or whatever. Listen, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that it's not dependent upon your worth? It's not dependent upon your works. It's all dependent upon the amazing grace of God. That's why I'm glad we sang that song this morning. Because God's grace is amazing. We don't deserve the goodness of God. We don't deserve the love of God. We don't deserve the forgiveness of God. We certainly don't deserve the heavenly blessings of being adopted into the family of God. But God gives it freely. And all we have to do is believe. With all of our heart and trust Him. Oh, listen, David was pointing that out. He was teaching at this point that others might learn. Let's move forward and look at the assurance of God's faithful protection as we look in verse 6. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. And that's interesting because that's also quoted over in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 6. And Isaiah is appealing to the nation of Israel to come, or Judah, to come to, come to God in a time of their rebelliousness. And they were, they were blaspheming God and they were committing apostasy. And, and, and Isaiah was saying, come back to God. Confess your sins. Repent to God while He can be found. Not that God was going to go anywhere. But you know, there came a time when God backed off away from the nation of Israel. He took His hand of favor and blessing off of the people, the descendants of Abraham, because they had so rebelled against Him and sinned and never repented and never confessed their sins. And God took His hand off of the nation of Israel so as to almost, they, in their mind, in their spirit, they sensed that God was off at a distance. They couldn't find Him. They could pray, but there was a void. And Isaiah was saying prior to that, come to God now while He's available to you. He said, well, I know that God is everywhere. He, he won't be distant from me. I think about a time years ago when I was in my early pastorate and a young man that was contemplating cheating on his wife and, he, uh, and I found out about it and I went to, to, to confront him and talk to him and appeal to him in love and, and I was sharing scripture with him and encouraging him to look at the things that, in his life that were not right with God and certainly hurtful towards his family, his wife and his children and I, I appealed with him to look at the truth and, and I'll never forget the statement that he said with just a, a wash of depression and hopelessness over his face. He said, Pastor Charlie, I just, I just feel like God is so far away. Even when I pray, I feel like He's light years away. You know and I know that God is omnipresent and He is always with us and He's always everywhere. But let me tell you something. Spiritually, there can be a great distance between you and God. And when you're in your sin and you know that and God is pressing upon your heart, that's the time. Don't you wait till you've let that heart of yours become calloused in sin. Don't you wait until you put it off and put it off because in your own mind you are distancing yourself from God. You can get to a point that you will fail to call upon the Lord and experience His forgiveness. But praise God, He's there to forgive us. He says, for this cause everyone who is godly shall pray in a time when you may be found Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near me or near him. 
You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. You know, in the Bible, we think about, in the Old Testament, we think about water being used as a, as a form of judgment. And probably the most popular demonstration of that is in the story of Noah. When God warned the world that He was going to bring cataclysmic judgment upon the whole world, and He did. After He told Noah to build this great ark, this, this ship, if you will, and bring two of all the animals and His own family into the ark, then you know what? God closed the door. He sealed that ark. And the rain came down, and the water came up, and the face of the earth was covered. And people were running and, and, and crying and scratching on the side of that boat. I, I imagine what it must have been like for Noah and his family to hear the voices of drowning people on the outside screaming, Let us in! Let us in! They perished. But there was Noah and his family and all the animals with him. And God was shielding them from the judgment. The only thing that stood between Noah and his family and sure death in massive flood waters was the fact that they were covered by the wood of the ark and they were floating as if they were in the hand of God. And David is saying, in essence, here, for this cause, he says that we shall come before you. And he says, I know that you will protect us. And that's what he's doing Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near Him. You see what God does when we come to Him and we ask for His forgiveness? He forgives us. He shields us in His hand. Did not the Lord Jesus say in John chapter 10, Those that the Father gives unto me, in my hand, no one shall know I snatch them out of my hand. Once you have been forgiven of your sins and you're in the hands of God, you are safe and secure. You're safe and secure from the judgment of God. Let me tell you something. The judgment of God is coming. It won't come as water. It'll come as fire. But let me tell you something. You don't have to worry about it. When you've confessed your sins and you are right with God and you are in the hands of God, you are protected and shielded. We're covered and protected from the judgment of God. Not in an ark, but we're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and the cup is so vital. I think about back in Exodus in chapter 12 and verse 12 and 13. Exodus 12, 12 and 13 where the children of Israel there in captivity in Egypt and God was bringing all the plagues and Pharaoh's heart was just untouched virtually. And then finally God brought the tenth plague. And you know what that was when God sent the death angel through the nation of Israel, of Egypt. And he warned Moses and the children of Israel that if they would go and kill this Passover lamb and partake of the Passover and take the blood of the lamb and put it over the lintels and doorposts of their house. That, and God said that in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 12. He says, and when the death angel comes over, when I pass, God says, when I come and I see the blood, you are shielded. The judgment is coming the firstborn of every household, including Pharaoh, even the first of the livestock. He said, the firstborn throughout the whole nation of Egypt are going to die tonight at midnight. And they did. Except for the Jews. That simple cross of blood over their doors was the protective hand of God that shielded them from the judgment of God. 
We don't have to make a sacrifice of a lamb to gain that protection, ladies and gentlemen, because the precious Lamb of God has already given His life. And that's what we celebrate at the Lord's table is the fact that we have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. We're covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have this wonderful comfort. Sure, we'll have problems in this life. Sure, there will be trials that will come our way. But listen, we will never have to face the judgment of God. Is that not the assurance that the Apostle Paul had in Romans chapter 8? In verse 38, when he says, For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Hey, that's your protection. That's your assurance, as Paul says. Paul was facing a lot of things, but he knew that nothing, nothing could separate him from the God that he loved. And that's what David is telling us through this Wise, right in, in Psalm 32. Let's move on. Verse 8. It's interesting. Because lo and behold, I don't know what the music would sound like. As the music would change, it would almost be like celestial. And I don't know what celestial, maybe harps, trumpets. Because suddenly it's God speaking. Now, God is speaking, but He's speaking through David eventually to us. But, but initially, it's God speaking to David. So look at verse 8. He says, I, this is the Lord. The Lord said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. And I think about, you know how a parent in coaching a child and doing some errand or doing some task or whatever, and the child wants so much to please mom and dad, you know? And, and you know how uh, the close relationship between a mother and a child, a father and a child, you know, sometimes the, the parent doesn't even have to speak because the minute they look at the child and the child looks at them, it's, you know, like check, locking eyes. Am I right? Uh, you know, and, and they can see the approval. They can see the disapproval. And so, you know, even without speaking words, they're being guided by their parent. I think about some of these, uh, these ballet dancers or the uh, ice skaters, the, you know, the, the uh, ones that skate in the Olympics. I, a lot of times I like to watch the coaches. They can't get out there and say, here, honey, here, stand up this way. Or here, you know, go hold your leg like this. You know, all they can do is, all they can do is stand on the sideline and watch. But oftentimes, there's that, there's that connection. And they're watching their coach. Or the coach is watching that person that's performing. That mother's watching that child. That child is watching. There's learning going on. There's instruction going on, even with the glance. Did you see what David was saying? God was saying there? God says, I will guide you with my eye. But let me tell you something. For us to be guided by the eye of God, and God is always watching. I think about in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, where the Lord said, The eyes of the Lord scan over the earth, run over the earth to and fro. God's always looking. He's always scanning. He's always watching. He's watching His people. He's watching what's going on in the world. He's watching you. He's wanting you to be connected with Him visually. And that, that's through reading the Word of God and through prayer. God says, keep your eyes on Me. And I'll guide you. I'll, I'll guide you in the way you should go. You don't have to go back and read it, but one of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible, Old Testament, especially in 2 Chronicles in chapter 20, when King Jehoshaphat in the nation of, of Judah had an insurmountable uh, coalition of enemy forces coming against them. Thousands and thousands of enemy soldiers coming against them. They were terribly outnumbered. And you know, it's funny, because Jehoshaphat, being a, a man of God and a believer in God, 
He didn't call to Egypt or any foreign nation and say, send reinforcements, we need help. They didn't go call the five-star generals in and say, let's, let's develop a contingency plan for some, some kind of a military tactic. You know what he did? He called the people of God together and said, let's pray. we got to pray. we got to get our eyes on God. And that's exactly what he prayed. He came humbly before God with the nation gathered before him there in Jerusalem. And they looked up towards heaven and he basically said, oh God... Here before this place that we worship you, that represents you, we, we make known to you the condition or, or the circumstances that we face. And Lord, we trust you. But I like what Jehoshaphat said as he began to close the prayer. He says, even if the enemy comes against us, even if death is at the back door, he says, oh God, our eyes are on you. Do you have that constant fixation on God? Are you tracking with the Lord in God's Word? Are you in a position where spiritually the God can give you signals, give you warnings, give you instruction and encouragement to help you make decisions, to make the, the right decisions to, 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 to live in accordance to His will? The problem with so many Christians is they get their eyes off of God. Take their eyes off. We talk about distracted driving. And folks, I'm going to tell you something. I've seen enough of it out there on the road to make me want to get a bicycle and ride it, but then somebody run over top of me. But it's amazing to see the people that are driving down the road. You can tell the ones that are distracted because they're all over the road or they're driving 10 miles an hour in a 90 mile, I mean a 15 mile, mile an hour zone or they're driving 90 in a 35. I mean, you know, and, and, and listen, there may be a lot of distracted drivers, but there are a lot of distracted Christians. And just as distracted driving can get you in a wreck, let me tell you something. Distracted Christianity can get you in a spiritual wreck. You take your constant watch off of God's eyes and you will be in trouble. And God says, I will guide you. I will guide you by my eye. Look at verse 9. This is where the country boy comes out in me because I love talking about horses and mules. God said, listen. Let me instruct you by you just watching me. You be in tune with me. You, you, let me talk to your heart. I'll guide you. He said, don't be like a horse. Or worse, a mule. You know, all my life growing up on a farm in, in early years before we had all the tractors and things, we had horses and mules to pull plows and wagons and things like that. And, and to the best of my recollection, I never remember my dad or my granddad going down to the stable and taking the mule out of the stable and said, look, now today, I want you to go down and back up to that plow over there and I want you to hook up to it. Go to the back field over there on the first row and today I want you to plow the first, you know. No! He could talk to his blue in his face, especially to a mule. Now, if you're a mule lover, I'm sorry. But they're very stubborn animals and they're hard-headed. You know, kind of like some church people. For that, but, I, but anyway, the, the fact is, they, you can't talk to them to instruct them. You know what you have to do? You have to catch them. Put a bridle on. Stick the bit in their mouth. And the only way that they'll go right is if you pull to the right. The only way they'll go left is go to the left. And that's how God said, don't be like a mule. Don't be like a horse that I have to put a bit in your mouth and forcefully coerce you. God doesn't want to lead us by coercion. He wants to lead us by compassion and love and communion. God prefers wise counsel over brute coercion. He's always watching you. He's always instructing us. And as we close, I look at the last two verses. And it's interesting because you see this. You remember in, in, in uh, Psalm, the first Psalm, Psalm number one, 
It, it also talked about, there was like a preface to the book of Psalms. And the psalmist, David, was basically saying, this, this whole book before you, the whole book of Psalms, all 150 book, books uh, or Psalms in this, in this book are about choosing. Everybody has a choice to make. You can choose to live the life of a wise person who honors God and follows God and are blessed, or you can choose the way of the ungodly. And you remember where he talks about, blessed is the man who does, who does not walk in the way of the ungodly, or stand in the path of the sinners, or sits in the seat of the scornful. God says, oh no, the wise man is the one who meditates on the Word of God. And he's like a tree that's planted by the rivers and he bears fruit. And blessings. Well, look, he's, he's repeating this. He said, many, in verse 10, many sorrows shall be to the wicked. And there are. I know you look around, you see people that are rich, living like the devil. You see people that are popular. Got all these possessions and things, and, and yet their lifestyle is highly immoral. And you say, what's the deal? Here I am over here trying to be faithful and following God and, you know, and doing the right thing and, and I can probably squeak out an existence here and a, a meager lifestyle and everything and I'm not popular or anything. You know, what's the deal? You've got to full, see the full, full movie. The rich, the famous, the popular, the, the prominent... They may appear to have everything going their right way right now, but whether they realize it or not, they're on a train bound for a spiritual train wreck. It will come crashing down on them. Some in this lifetime, but if not, certainly when they breathe their last on this earth, they are headed towards an eternal train wreck of the soul. Many, he says, the sorrows shall be to the wicked. But look what he says in contrast. But he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy and all you upright in heart. I like Isaiah 26. If you ever have yourself going through a tough time and you're struggling and you're troubled in your spirit and nothing seems to be going right and you're agonizing in your heart, I highly recommend you keep this by your bedstand. It's a powerful verse. It simply says in Isaiah 26.3, talking to the Lord, You will keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. That's the key. That's the key. To having peace and contentment and joy and fulfillment and being blessed in your life is trust in the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Not easy, but straight. So I ask you today, where in this psalm would you say you are in your walk with the Lord? Are you walking in the darkness of trying to hide sin? Cover up sin? Rationalize it in your life? I promise you, just as David experienced, you will not have ultimate peace. 
You cannot have an authentic, genuine fellowship walk with God when you are harboring unconfessed, unrepented sin in your life. Some of the greatest misery of your spirit and soul will be as a result of sin that you don't take honestly before God. However, there's never been a more exhilarating experience in the human experience than a minute that a sinner calls upon righteous God and says, Oh God, I know I have sinned. Lord, I am sorry for that sin. You know it and I know it. And I confess it to you today, Lord. And I repent. In other words, I'm not just sorry of it, but I'm going to do something about it. And the sinful relationship that I'm in, God, I'm walking away from it. The sinful activities that I'm participating in, Lord, I'm turning my back on them. I'm throwing them out. I'm getting them out of my life. I'm doing a spiritual U-turn. God, I'm sorry for my sin. I want to come to You and give myself to You and throw myself upon Your mercy. And when you experience the forgiveness of God, brothers and sisters, there is no other joy that comes close to comparing. I invite you, at the words of the wise writing of the King of Israel, David, come, confess, repent, and be blessed. Blessed is the man, woman, young person, child, whose sins have been forgiven by the Lord. Let's pray.